This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, this is The Minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Uh, This week we take a break from counting medals to talk about something else. Um, although, were we going to count medals? Were we, Willie? Was that was that really no, one just, of the options? I just mean that's that's all we're doing at the moment. So we're oh, taking a good. break from that to do this. Terrific! But if Excellent. you want, we could do a medal counting show. Well, no. Sorry, that's that's the voice Please. of Scott Stevens, my co-host. By the way, my name is Willie Darley. Scott often breaks the fourth wall like that. You just need to be aware that that sometimes happens. Um, if we were going to do a medal counting show, how would we do it? Uh, it would begin with your co-host actually watching some of the Olympics. Um, oh, really? That would probably you, be have, a, you're the only no. person in Australia who hasn't done that. Quite possibly. Oh. Yeah, sorry. I just we we actually did a show with Gideon Haig some years ago about yes. the Olympics. Um, I mean, at the at the best of times, I find Olympics a, a morally problematic offering. Uh, at the worst of times, which this certainly is, I find it almost unconscionable. The only thing that gets me over the line as to whether or not we should have an Olympics at all, is the sheer amount of soul-crushing, individually aspiring and inspiring uh, activity on the part of individual Olympians. I find, I, I, I find the kind of the, the national dimensions of Olympic pursuit almost entirely un- uninteresting, uh, and the individual aspirations almost entirely or solely compelling. But apart from that, I just I, I think it's a leftover of various forms of military chauvinism, of national prejudice, with a nice healthy dose of uh, racial supremacism uh, sprinkled. It sounds, in, it sounds like an easy thing to say when you haven't watched any of it. No, I have watched it in the past, which is why I don't watch it anymore. Yeah, but when? Like, just because you watched some of Munich doesn't count. (laughs) 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 Love it. No, I'm I'm all in. I think it's great. I really do. I I know you do. The only thing is I found, uh, I know, I'm sorry, I know we've got a topic to get to, which I'm actually looking Mm, forward to. It's quite a fun topic, um, I think. Um, At least I hope it's going to (laughs) be. But um, the thing I found funniest about the Olympics in the opening ceremony was when you, did you, see any of it. They did no, um, this um, this version of John Lennon's Imagine and they had like a singer from each continent doing different bits of it. And the first oh, singer I think was a woman from Africa and she started singing the line, Imagine There's No Country. And I just thought, well, there go the Olympics then. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what a strange line to be singing at the opening ceremony of the Olympics, and then got to the bit that said, and no religion too. And I thought, well, that's oh. probably offended about 80% of the countries that are there. <laughs> so, How about that? It's amazing, the thoughtlessness with which some of that... Percent. You wanted We Are the World instead, didn't you? Uh, didn't no, I can't confess no? to having wanted that. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it probably would have been more fitting. Okay. <laughs> which says everything you need to know about the aesthetics of the Olympics. Well, Olympics. possibly. I don't, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, should we do the show? Yes, please. Okay. Um, what do you want to? I'll, I'll let you. I mean, you normally introduce the topic, and, oh, I, and this oh. one actually was your idea. Although I was quite keen to do it um, once you suggested it. So you were was... shockingly eager to do it, Willie. It really, it was really exciting. Why? Why were you surprised? to me that you were so eager that you were so invested in one side of this particular issue? Um, and I'll, I'll confess that your investment in one side of the issue made me take slightly more morally seriously my own oh, really uh, my own dissension yes you need yes, to know yes, that this is that i hold my view quite lightly because i haven't thought a lot about this okay so okay. maybe you've wasted your time <laughs> oh really <laughs> well we'll see oh, my let's goodness. let's get into it and see what happens well well part of me in fact wants to simply introduce the topic by doing a really cheesy kind of 1940s radio Billionaires in space. <laughs> we should have. You should have told us you were going to do that. Tim could have put some reverb on or something. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so look, um, the space race. I think it's fair to say has been languishing for uh, at least a decade, uh, from say uh, from 2011 when the United States suspended indefinitely 
all uh, its shuttle program, all manned spaceflight. Um, they've more or less outsourced um, running things, goods, people back and forth to the International Space Station to private providers, having relied on European space programs uh, up to that point. But there's something really interesting that's happened this year. It's been a long time coming, and I still find the breathiness with which the media covers it kind of in some ways interesting, in other ways unseemly. What do you mean by that? But certainly morally provocative. What's that? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, let's let's face it. Uh, Sir Richard Branson in mid-July and former Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, Mm -hmm. they took... Uh, slightly personneled private flights into not really space, but rather the sort of outer layers, the lower outer layers of the Earth's atmosphere. Listen to you um, trying to downplay it. I mean, they didn't really go to space. They only went to the lower they, outer layers. They really didn't go to space. I mean, they really didn't go to space. The whole thing has been a publicity stunt. Yeah. But what I find fascinating is the appetite that there now is for the possibility of privatized space flight or among space. Who? You mean among billionaires or you mean among the general population? Well, uh, billionaires, I think, is an interesting topic, and I think that's what we really want to focus on. But why is it that the news and so many people seem to be so eager to see this happen and almost seem to be slobbering at the prospect of something like space flight or? Or that kind of not slight, not quite sort of international flight, but a little bit above, uh, looking down on, we can't really call it the Earth, can we? But sort of, you know, the outer layers uh, of, this, of this terrestrial sphere. I mean, it's not even the Earth. They're it's going, not even really – you're not seeing the whole thing. Yeah, it's sure, not like the – But it's a proof It's of not concept. like the Earth rise it's, from 1967. Sure, but this is not the end point. I no, think you're being no, very snobbish that, about right. this up front. No, no. Sorry. I am being slightly snobbish. What I mean is after a long while where I think it's fair to say that the prospect and the inherent dangers bound up with manned spaceflight, I mean, for quite a long while, that filled a good number of people with a fair degree of trepidation. I'll, I'll mm. confess, Waleed. I, I remember vividly, vividly, 1986 – Watching now, I, I was only what was it? I was thirteen, not quite thirteen. Uh, I'm not sure if it was live. My memory says that I think it was live because uh, because schoolchildren across the United States were encouraged to to tune in and watch the Challenger blast off the Challenger space space mission. Uh, I certainly remember vividly the bewilderment after there was the. And even now, I don't know quite what it was. Was it an explosion? Was it the disintegration of the shuttle? Uh, I remember at the time thinking how horrible it was that this particular space mission, which was notable, you know, I mean, one of the reasons it was publicized, one of the reasons it was pushed to children was because of the presence of Krista McAuliffe, uh, a, a school teacher, on the Challenger mission. And then sort of bewildered at the sudden plume of smoke And then learning much, much, much later, in fact, just a few years ago, that chances were the astronauts didn't die on explosion, but most likely the shuttle probably depressurized, uh, almost certainly killed everyone upon impact on the water. I mean, there was something about that that was profoundly traumatic. It went from being the great adventure, the next step of human aspiration, to being something that was inherently, almost catastrophically dangerous. And then for that catastrophe to be reinforced in 2003 with the Columbus, uh, Columbia, I beg your pardon, the Columbia reentry calamity. Um, there are all sorts of things about spaceflight that kind of went from an aspiration, kind of the thing that comes next for the human race, to being something that is blanketed in layer upon layer upon layer of possible disaster. But couldn't, couldn't you tragedy. have told a similar story about like just flight? Yeah. The difference is though, with flight, there is a telos, isn't there? And there is an, an immediate telos. There is an, there's quite literally an endpoint. You're going from one place to another place. 
with space, well, like, it's r- something... Rockets don't go from one place to another place. No, no, they, 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 they don't. They don't in precisely the sense that we are going from humanity's natural habitat to an environment that is uniquely unsuited to human life. I mean, you're quite literally plunging into the void. You could have made a similar, though, diminutive argument about that with plane travel. You're not going to an atmosphere that your body can't take, but you are shrinking the world and putting people in all kinds of environments that are deeply alien to them Hmm. that could create all kinds of knock-on effects. The better analogy would be something like deep sea travel. I mean, if, if, if deep sea voyaging was ever something that was democratized, no, that was made sure, but you're, public. I see what you're saying, but you're focusing only on the physical dimensions of this. Uh, I just think it's, surely space travel is just an extension of the urge to travel and explore more generally. And just as we wanted to explore the world and experience other places on the planet, um, you know, other natural environments, other cultures, all of that, Surely we would want to see what is out there. In fact, I think yeah. that's one of the one of the most important and fundamental yearnings of the human being. It's one of the greatest things about the human condition that we have this curiosity and that we benefit so much from that curiosity. I don't know why you seem so keen to poo-poo it. Like I know, no. sure, there are tragedies that happen along the way, but if if you're going to cite that as an argument, really in relation to anything, then most advances don't happen. Uh, I think you're kind of diminishing somewhat my point. Okay. Maybe uh, let me, can I get you to restate it so I understand yes, it Yes, yes. No, no, it, it, it's fine. Let me, let me try to back this up more fully. Um, I do think the fact that the quote-unquote space race, which really was a race between and among nations, the fact that that took off quite literally in the wake of, in the decade following the Second World War, after the experience of a terrestrial morass uh, after something that was so, uh, I, I really apologize to our listeners for kind of using these terms, but that was so, so chthonos, uh, so bound up with the mud, the soil, the blood, uh, the, the, the sheer mortal reality of the human condition. Uh, I think there was something quite purposeful about, first of all, the launch of the Sputnik in 1957 uh, and then of manned space flight in the 1960s, and then, of course, the aspiration to the moon. I think there was something aesthetically, possibly even morally purposeful about that. It was part of our attempt. Uh, There were various terrestrial attempts as well, but this was a kind of global attempt to escape something like the claustrophobia, uh, the suffocation of the war, of the experience of war. So there was something that I think that could legitimately qualify as a kind of shared human aspiration. Now, the fact is, of course, that space travel was in many respects, or the space race was in many respects, a continuation of the Cold War by other means. This was part of the assertion of, say, military dominance, of technological supremacy, national one-upmanship, the fact that it was a race that was taking place between the United States and Russia. I think there's, again, there's no... Uh, there's no coincidence there. There was flag planting um, and so on. Yeah. There was flag planting, absolutely. So, yeah. so you know, the, it's the, the, the national dimensions of that, but also the human dimensions of it. I think you're right, are to some extent unavoidable. And I could even say that there's no, no, probably... I want to say more than that. I want to say laudable. Okay, great. Laudable. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Can we agree on that? Well, yes. Well, I, yes. I think there is a case that can be made that there was something aesthetically possibly even morally necessary about escaping human limitations, having been confronted in such a visceral, grisly way with the limitations of the human condition in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s. I think there's something morally defensible, possibly even laudable about that attempt at escape, yes. Okay. Okay. Not not just escape, though. I'm talking about more than escape. I know, I know you're talking about escape in the context of the mm-hmm. Cold War, but I, I'm talking about something more than that as well, which is just the elements of curiosity and wonder and extensions of knowledge and all of these things that are inherent in the exploration of space. Yes, yes. And, and look, space exploration, absolutely. But I guess my point is, well, space exploration doesn't have to be manned. Um, And for me, the one ongoing justification 
for sending human beings into an environment that is uniquely inhospitable, that in fact wants to kill them if, if the void can be given a degree of agency. The one justification there is, is the ongoing maintenance of the forms of technology that we, are, the, that we already have orbiting that give us the ability to look further into space, that try to situate us in our place in the universe. Um, that's, it seems to me, is the one form of justification. Every other form of justification, especially the ones that we find now being rehearsed by these billionaires, um, who have been deeply invested in, say, the privatization of spaceflight, or of now what some people are calling space tourism, after so many nations have opted out of uh, manned or, you know, mm. uh, sending human beings uh, into space. Um, that justification, which really is the transcendence of human limitations, and certainly for someone like Jeff Bezos, for someone like Elon Musk, this really is a form of defiance against the very conditions of not just human finitude, but also planetary finitude. On, on, what, do so, you, on what basis do you assess, uh, sorry, assert that? They've said it. So they they want to do away with all limits on human physicality. Uh, uh, limits on human physicality in the sense of the natural limits that attend to population growth. Right. That that the Earth is by definition a limited resource. Yep. By all accounts, we've made a bit of a mess of it. Uh, for Elon Musk, that precipitates a doomsday scenario uh, whereby at some stage Earth will simply no longer be hospitable to human beings. Uh, and for Jeff Bezos, uh, the escape from the limitations of the Earth are are necessary for his own dogma, which I, I think you'd also say is probably capitalism's dogma, of infinite growth. That, uh, that growth must be infinite uh, or else it precipitates, it leads to... Uh, what he calls the day two scenario, which is being plunged into decline, despair, and ultimately okay. death and so, self-annihilation. So these are all fair points, right? But I think what I think I'd say a couple of things to that. One, one is that the point you made earlier about how the space race really became a form of the, the extension of geopolitics hmm. um, and had a kind of nationalist overtone that perhaps wasn't particularly um, edifying for everybody, that didn't vitiate immediately all of the benefits that accrued from it. No. So in no. other words, you might come and, 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 to this. And, and, and sorry, Willie, before you go on, can I just also say, so that nobody thinks I'm kind of dewy-eyed and naive about this, I think it was probably the spectacle, the necessity of national competitiveness that led to the health and the relative success of the space program. In yeah. other words, I don't think it would have happened had it simply been a matter of international cooperation. There you go. You're talking like a good capitalist now. This is exciting. So competition for people's own self-interested ends led to something, right? Yeah. And and those things <laughs> I would deny that. And those things were good. But well, uh, you know, a lot of those things were good. I'm those things had 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 some some collateral advances yeah, and benefits. But but I think the point I, I want to make is it may well be that people have certain intentions or ideas um, when they embark upon something like this, but it is also true. It must be true. And I keep hearing that it's true from everyone who talks about this stuff, that you come out transformed. So no one goes to space and comes back the same person is a very common mantra. I hear this a lot. And I can only assume it's true as someone who has not been to space. <laughs> um, but in the same way, I can, I can analogize, right? So in the same way that when you travel around the world, you come back changed. Certainly mm. if you go to the right sorts of places and you, you know, if, if your version of traveling around the world is to pick a resort that resembles, that, that makes the world resemble the one that you already live in, except with a good beach and yep. just spend your time there, then that you probably won't come back transformed. But if you go somewhere that has a radically different environment, you have a radically different perspective on things, you see things you otherwise wouldn't have seen, mm. then that changes things, right? And you can't help but have that if you go to space, I would have thought. Yep. So one of the elements of this, leaving aside all of the potential technological advances that come from this that have in the past already given us huge benefits, you know, to do with, I don't know, um, imaging technology that gets used in the medical profession, for example, or... Wi-Fi or, I mean, there's, there probably is a whole book written on the spin-off advances as a result of space exploration. But even just leaving those aside, 
this idea that when you you gaze back upon the earth from outside of it, that you cannot help but see the earth in a different way, that can be intensely productive. Like I, I, th- this might actually end up being, and it may not be, I grant you this, but it could end up being a transformative moment in the relationship of human beings to the natural environment. Because imagine if, for example, these billionaires pull this off and they come back with a completely new appreciation of what the natural world is. Like The whole environmental movement was kicked off by that photo, right? I mean, sorry, that's an exaggeration, but... It was... That blue marble photo was It was given, yes. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And that's before you get to other elements of it. So one of the other dimensions I hadn't really thought about is that the thing about space travel is it is critical that it is sustainable because you don't have resources you can plumb, right? So you actually develop all kinds of a, a whole new respect for sustainable practices and, um, and you have to because without that you don't survive. What happens when those practices come back to earth? What, maybe that has some dramatic impact on this idea of just sort of infinitude that you're discussing, this idea of perpetual growth and now we've destroyed this planet, let's go and find another one to destroy. You could well find completely different outcomes that are the, the total opposite of that when you when you get down to it. I just think there's so much there that there's so much potential that is being discounted and when you factor in that nations aren't doing this and I mm-hmm. think this is an essential human endeavour, right? I, uh, Sorry, really do. you think this is an essential human endeavour? Yes, I think space exploration is an essential human endeavour. I haven't always thought that, I haven't really thought about it, but as I've thought about it, I thought, no, I think it really is. For moral reasons, for scientific reasons, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, if states aren't going to step in and do it, then I don't know why I should sit here and be churlish that billionaires are going to do it. Wow. Can I can I just make two really quick points? Sure. <laughs> um, because I'm 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 worried about sort of throwing our throwing these to our guests who may well have nothing <laughs> yeah, to yeah, go on. have no interest in saying anything in response to anything that I'm, I'm about to say. I mean I'm 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 kind of perplexed by by what you're saying, Waleed, um, because my I mean you're absolutely right about the effect of the Earth Rise, the 1967 1968 Earth Rise photo. photo. Uh, and the perspective that gave, not just on the idea of the globe being suspended there in a precarious void, we're on our own. Yeah, the therefore, we need to yeah. we, the the whole fragility, the, even the contingency of the whole thing, and therefore we need to care for this common home. Um, I mean, part of me wants to say, well, you know, that didn't actually, in the end, get us terribly far in terms of the awakening of a great many people to the possibility of environmental catastrophe. But even if we do concede that it did, and, and I do think that image is a powerful one, um, the, the, the aesthetics of privatized space travel isn't really backward looking in that sense. It's looking, I mean, the way that it's being marketed, the way that it's being promoted get, by yeah, the very the people who are funding it, it is looking beyond the horizons. And it's looking beyond the horizons for new worlds to possibly colonize, sure. to plunder. So, so, so there is something about kind of a degree of escapism from, from the limitations that, w- that is here now that wasn't present in 1968. I, I think yeah. that's a really, really Im- important point. I, I take your point. I think that there were forward-looking and, you know, conquest elements to the yes. 1960 space race too, though. I wouldn't... Yeah, yeah. of course. Um, of course. Look, the, the other really, really quick thing... Oh, no, no. no. Let's, Sinead's let's, really let's, angry Yeah, I know. I can see. Um, yeah, this is sorry. The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now, but you can also catch the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. And if you would like, you can also get in touch with Scott on social media and he can just tell you all <laughs> the things he didn't get to say. Uh, Scott, we have a guest. We do indeed have a guest. Jordan Gao is research fellow in the Australian Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. And after all, that's exactly what we're talking about, isn't it? Responsible technology. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. No worries. Thank you for having me. 
So, so look, uh, I'm sure you've got an awful lot to say about this. Let me just put something to you, though, that you may or may not want to weigh in on, but I think it's probably the natural extension of what Walid and I have talked about so far, and then you can just take it wherever you want. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering about whether politics really can be cleanly separated out or factored out of the possibility of a space race. And what, what I mean by that is if, if Walid is right, if space travel, if, if uh, space travel with human beings aboard spacecraft, if this is uh, not just what comes next, but if this is kind of an essential part of the human aspiration, then does it really matter if we turn this over to the hands of billionaires or private individuals who are not really accountable in any way uh, to, to electors, to citizens? Does it really matter that it's in their hands? Or is there something about the nature of collective accountability of the politics, and I, I do mean politics here in the best possible sense, in other words, the arena of shared deliberation about what are the limits of space travel, about what we want, what we should want, what we mustn't allow. Are there, is there a space for limits on any extension of the space race? Uh, or, or is this something that we can just sort of cleanly, easily, and with few concerns hand over to private individuals and hope that they can facilitate it for the rest of us? Yeah, so I, I think there's always going to be a political element to it. And so the reason why I take issue with the billionaires is to sort of address Waleed's earlier point. You know, you know, there is an element that this is about human extension and you know the, the human condition and the need for curiosity and exploration. However, what I take issue with is that we can't, I don't believe that we can divorce that that feeling from how it's currently being defined by the billionaires. So if we sort of accept that you know, the nations have, you know, given up their investment in space and there hasn't been that kind of narrative uh, politically or otherwise that has carried us through. And that so now the people that are taking it up are the tech billionaires. And so you know, we have to look at how they, they therefore define space travel because they're the ones who are currently being allowed to manifest what that vision is. And they're the ones who are being given the privilege of, you know, bringing to life what their space vision is. And so I think it's important that we sort of frame it within how the billionaires think about it because they're the ones who are taking up that that narrative and it's their ideas. And so that's the bit that I, I take issue with because if we do in fact unpack what their vision for space is, and you've alluded to it already um, earlier, Scott, you know, it is about colonization and it is about infinite profit. And um, so Bezos actually um, outlined his vision for space and it is, about this sense that the earth is limited. And I think his words were that future generations, you know, will be stagnant or the earth will get to a point of stasis. So it's this kind of uber capitalist um, idea that I need to go somewhere else for that. And so that's important because they're the current pioneers. And so they're getting to define how we approach space race now and into the future, right? So maybe at some point, if this does develop, there will be more sort of magnanimous visions. Maybe that'll come, but they certainly have first mover advantage in getting to set the terms of how we engage with the space race in the near future. And I think that's problematic. Yeah, it's problematic if it's static. I'd, I wouldn't be so confident, A, that it's static, and B, that it can't be regulated. So there would surely be tools available to governments if they were actually interested and prepared to get involved in this. Um, that could stave off some of the worst possibilities of this. Or indeed, what it might do is give governments the nudge they need to get back involved in this sort of thing, which they've been neglecting. 
But I guess all I'm saying is, I, I, I'm not saying I subscribe to the ideologies at play here, just as I probably wouldn't have subscribed to the Cold War ideologies that drove the space race in the 60s. Hmm. It's not that. I'm more interested in the possibilities that this opens up. I mean, these ideologies are here, whether you like them or not, and these billionaires will have them, whether they're involved in space or not. The exciting thing about the space element is probably more than their applications on Earth, <laughs> there's the possibility here of some real benefits accruing. So at the risk of repeating myself, you know, imagine what would happen if these billionaires came back and became environmentalists as a result. I mean, like imagine, imagine that. Or imagine if the work they were doing generated all kinds of incredible climate change data, which I think, by the way, is one of the reasons that some Republicans in the United States are opposing the expansion of NASA programs because they don't want the climate change data that is being offered here. In other words, I get they're billionaires and they're, you know, very wealthy, powerful people, but I just think I just maybe naively trust that the universe is more powerful than them and yeah, it may yeah, just impact you, upon them. Can I just get some, can I just get some clarity just to make sure the three of us are on the same page? Sure. Are we, I mean, are we talking about the sending of human-made objects into space in the interests of space exploration and understanding our place in the universe? Are we talking about the development of technologies that facilitate the sending of human-made objects into space for the purpose of space exploration and so on and so forth? Or are we talking about the sending of human beings into space? And, well, if the latter, then for what purpose? Because I think for, for me, you know, uh, it's, it's hard for me to try to formulate a compelling argument against the sending of human-made objects into space. I think that's that that's part of the you natural. Don't, you don't see the benefit in sending human beings to space. No, I do not. No, I do not. Okay. Well, I've said enough, Jordan. It's really interesting. So, um, Bezos, after he got down from space, or you know, the the, the edges of space, and I think he spent <laughs> about ten minutes. He he was um, he was asked he was asked that question about. You know, what, was there some sort of transformative experience for you? You know, you actually, you got to see the world in in a way that most of us will not be able to see. And so that overview effect, I think that you mentioned, Scott, of, mm. you know, will, will this enlighten you somehow? And he, he sort of, he sort of said yes. But what he said was yes. And, um, you know, it made me think about the climate and that what we need to do is move all polluting industries and heavy industries into space. And so even, <laughs> even, that, even that sort of transformation was, was still like thinking in capitalist terms. So Sure, but it's know, been uh, 10 minutes is all I'm saying, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, 10 minutes. And in pretend space, as Scott would describe it. So, <laughs> you know. Ursat, it's, it's placebo space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other the other side of it i think that is not being talked about as much is you know the environmental cost of yes. of space technology and rocket emissions and so if they do pull it off and if you know space flight is somehow you know accessible and affordable to a lot of us on mass you know imagine the the emissions that that is going to generate so like one long haul flight is something like one to three tons of carbon dioxide per passenger. You know, for a rocket, you sort of times that by 100 or 200. And so, you know, I, I guess if we're thinking about it in terms of, you know, return on investment, if you want to talk about corporate speak, um, like Bezos does, we need to then factor in all of the costs that are involved in that development. And then we can start to sort of have a better conversation around Therefore, are those benefits, you know, whether they come or not, does that possibility of future advancement, is it worth the cost of what it's actually currently doing um, and the cost that we're bearing as a result now? Yeah, I, I, these are all really good questions. Um, and to some extent, you support it in your argument by the fact that so much of our development of technology has been environmentally deleterious. I mean, the whole industrial revolution has really destroyed the planet, right? Um, and so I'm not pretending that every technological advancement is good. Um, 
In fact, I'm the last person on the planet would argue that. I'm somewhat of a Luddite on these things. Um, but I also think that what that does then, Jordan, is doesn't that make this really a question for governments? So I fear the privatisation of space travel from the point of view of it giving, creating an unregulated sort of um, environment where we probably should at least have it. But it's still within the purview of governments to do something about that. And so I wonder if the focus is, shouldn't really be on, you know, um, poking billionaires who want to go in space and saying that it obviously reflects some kind of psychological deficiency they have or rampant greed or whatever, and just, you know, moralizing about them so much as it is poking our governments and saying, well, A, you've abandoned this and shame on you, but B, you should be doing something about Sorry, again, Waleed, abandon what? What do you mean? Well, all the things you were describing at the start of the show about the way that governments have cut certain programs or funding or they're just showing far less interest in their... But, 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 but what? I mean, the United States spends, what is it, Jordan, 50, 40, 40 something billion on its space program every year. Yeah, so, um, so here's the fun, here's the fun part. So I'm actually um, I, I agree with you, uh, Waleed. I think government has a lot to account for when it comes to investment because there's actually a lot of government subsidies that are being given to mm. to these companies. So Elon Musk received something like five billion in government subsidies, and Bezos. Um, got about 3.7 billion for Amazon, which you know helped facilitate um, the development of Blue Origin the space company. So yeah, they're on welfare it, basically. <laughs> exactly. So this is really weird kind of you know behind the scenes investment by government going on to these companies. And so the idea that they're private enterprises should really be questioned because they are, in fact, taking a lot of money, a lot of public money. So the question, therefore, becomes, A, why is government doing that? And B, why are we framing it um, in the story that this is private enterprise and you know that the tech billionaires are achieving this on their own? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that is a really I mean, question. What we're in fact looking at is, is, is the outsourcing of the development of, of space technology. Um, and, you know, without something like SpaceX, uh, over the last, what, four or five years, um, uh, persons would not have been able to be transported to the International Space Station. So it's, a, it's, it's not like everything has ground to a halt. I guess my, my, my real question here, and, and, and Waleed, you know, when you raise the issue of regulation, I think that's that's exactly right, but I even think it goes a few steps beyond regulation. We we absolutely don't want this to be an unregulated space. I think everyone can can agree with that. Everyone, <laughs> most people, <laughs> okay. most m- most interested and morally conscientious listeners would be able to agree <laughs> that there would be a very real problem with this being an unregulated uh, um, a matter or or effort or aspiration. The real issue for me, though, is. And, and again, I'm, I'm sorry about getting sort of so highfalutin about it. But the real issue for me is the teleology of the whole thing, the goal of the whole thing. So, for instance, if we're looking longingly once again at the moon, no longer as the next horizon in humanity's sort of aspiration towards transcendence, but rather as a new possible uh, resource for the mining and the transportation back to Earth, of a radioactive element called helium-3. That changes things. If we're looking at Mars as a new possible outpost for human beings, and uh, I mean, I I remember still being haunted by uh, by Elon Musk suggesting, I don't know if it was offhand, he does a lot of offhand suggesting, but (laughs) that we should nuke Mars in order to release the CO2 captured in Mars's surface and in the polar ice caps in order to begin the process of terraforming uh, for, human, uh, for human colonization. Uh, all of these things reflect, reflect a kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's a way of looking at what is as a world of, or a realm of possible resources that can be used, that can be exploited, but again, for one end. And I guess for me, politics is fundamentally 
a matter of teleology. It's a matter of the rationalization and the understanding of the ends of human life and of human communities. It's about the rationalization of limited resources. And to my mind, it's no, it's no uh, coincidence that Hannah Arendt wrote her magnificent treatise on, on political philosophy called The Human Condition. Uh, the year or it was published the year after uh, Sputnik went into space. And she opens it up with reflecting on this, this what she describes as human, humanity's rebellion against the natural limits of human existence. And that looking spaceward then becomes a way of denying our limitations. And therefore, she says, a way of refusing the necessary conditions of human life, which are essentially political conditions. In other words, the deliberation, the working out together through conversation, through speaking, through, uh, through, through, through argumentation, persuasion, regulation about how we're supposed to negotiate the limits of human life well, and the limits. So in of other life words, I planet. hate you so much. I'm actually just going to a different planet now. <laughs> or, 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 or I hate the limits of politics so much. I'm so frustrated by having to negotiate the sticky world of limitations that I'm going to look beyond the political realm. Uh, and I, I actually, I've always loved the fact that Hannah Arendt always associated politics with breath, politics with air politics with speaking and listening. And she said that ultimately this longing to get off the imprisonment of the, of the planet uh, is consigning oneself to a condition of suffocation. Mm. She, she described the refusal of politics as being in a condition of suffocation. So I think there's, there's something there. There's a denial. There's the longing to denial human limitations that I find deeply both morally and politically suspicious. All right, let's explore that more in a second. If you just join us, you're listening to The Minefield. Well, Ed Ali is my name. That was the voice of my co-host, Scott Stevens. We're joined today by Jordan Giao, who's a research fellow in the Australian, sorry, in the Australia Institute. I always make that mistake, Scott, always. The Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. Uh, Jordan, I'll let you respond to what Scott was outlining there. It, it sounds like a beautiful vision. Um, I think I'm probably a little bit more cynical in that can we actually divorce human politics from humans or will it just follow us around wherever we land? Of course, mm. yeah. So, you know, unless we, um, you know, we come across um, benevolent Martians who are, you know, that unbeknownst to us has, has evolved beyond politics. I, I, I think politics is, is inherent in the human condition and those limitations will probably just be replicated in slightly different ways. And so while I, um, I very much hope that, that that transcendent vision can be realized, I'm a little bit more unsure as to whether we can fully divorce ourselves from the, the, the conditions that that idea is trying to leave behind. Yeah, well, as I understand it, though, I might, I might have misheard you there, Scott, but as I understand it, the idea wasn't so much transcendent as escapist. Yes, exactly right. And e Exactly. Yeah, but I guess what I would say is I'm not sure that space travel is a particularly unique um, example of that. It feels it because it's literally going to other, like leaving the planet, leaving the world. But it very quickly becomes politicized. And as Jordan has explained, it would inevitably, the minute you have two people up there, you'll have politics, right? Hmm. Um, so, and we have all kinds of other ways of escaping politics now right here on earth. And the internet is one of the best ways of doing it. You, we've discussed this a lot. You can create your own silo and then you don't really have to do the hard work of engagement, consideration of you know, deliberation with people that you don't like and disagree with and all that sort of stuff. So w those tools, it seems to me, are probably far more effective in achieving that than anything that space travel would offer. Um, so in the end, I, I take your Arendtian point, but I just wonder how much life it has really left in it, given we're no longer immediately after Sputnik, we're a long way down the track. No, that, that, that's right. But, but surely, oh, okay, I'm sure we can agree that if a nation were to massively fund a space program intent on sending human beings once again to the moon, that it would do so in, the na in its national interest. As it always has. As it always has. But I, for one, would prefer 
for that to be done in a nation's interests or in the name of a national interest, given the, given the conviction that national interest is always already constrained yeah. by, at least theoretically, if not practically, by the wishes of the electorate. I would far prefer the national interest to be what's being invoked than simply viewing going to the moon uh, in terms of another resource, another quarry, another quarry that is there to be mined. Okay. That, for, for me, that's where the question of regulation really needs to um, really needs to come into effect. Sure, but Jordan, let me draw you on this. Um, while I'm inclined to agree with Scott uh, on that, in that I think you may as well acknowledge the politics and have it there rather than pretend you can escape it in some apolitical corporate fashion. Um, one advantage the corporate world does seem to have is that it isn't nationally bound. It's, you know, globalisation par excellence, if you like, or the opposite of par excellence. But it is globalised so that whatever benefits or potentially harms accrue, they do accrue to all of humanity in a sense in a way that might be easier to realise than if it's being done by national governments. Is there something there that's worth thinking about? Yeah, I I would have to agree with Scott on this one. I think I would also much rather prefer that it's enabled by national interests rather than private interests. And, you know, at a minimum, I think it's about accountability, uh, right? So at, at least despite all the flaws of government or government agencies, there are still systems of accountability and checks and balances that we can apply to that. Whereas as soon as you take it into a private um, enterprise, it's a lot less accountable. And What's well, differently it, it, accountable though, isn't it? So for example, if you're talking about a nation... Accountable to shareholders. <laughs> yeah, but those shareholders yeah. might at least exist all over the world. Whereas a, a national form of accountability. And by the way, I should say, I agree with Scott too. I'm just teasing out the dimensions of this. But, yeah. but the thing about saying that you have accountability via a national electorate is that when you're talking about interplanetary stuff, that's deeply unaccountable because the effects of it will be on everybody. Most of whom will have absolutely no say in the situation. I mean, globalisation has already rendered democratic accountability something of a myth because the people who are affected by national government decisions are not coextensive with the citizens of the country that get to vote. Mm, that's right. That would be only be magnified if you're talking about space. Yeah, well, exactly. And so, you know, if, if we look at what they've done now, so, you know, putting aside, you know, the, the unknowns of space for a moment, if we look at how people like Bezos and Musk have run their current companies as an example of, you know, as a preview, if you like, of what they might do in space, you know, it's a pretty grim picture, right? So like Amazon mm. overly surveilled, you know, brutalizes workers, you know, you're scared to go to toilet breaks because they have a deadline and, you know, they're being, you know, overly managed. Similarly, you know, Musk's um, companies, you know, overworked, union busting so if we if that's an example of you know the the corporate interests and corporate accountability i i would worry about expanding that out in in into space um and you know just amplifying all of those inequities that are already very evident now. Sure, but could I not have made the same argument with respect to the Soviet Union and the United States? Look at all the people that, that the, these empires have killed. Um, look at the sort of malevolent foreign policies that each of them enact, et cetera, et cetera. Like I could easily I think that, run yeah, an argument. I mean, the, the, the one thing that needs to be held up there, though, Waleed, is that democratic accountability or political accountability isn't just a matter of electors. It's also, to some extent, enshrined in I, – I realize this is a kind of problematic point in some ways – but it's also there in non-elected institutions, uh, um, even bureaucracies within nations that have a sense of history, that have accrued a kind of learning over time and so simply don't make decisions on the basis of either national advantage or profit or or, or whatever else. So I, I think, I mean, you, you, your, your point's right, 
but but there are always uh, countervailing there are often countervailing forces within political communities. These might be bureaucratized, these might be institutionalized, but they're part of a kind of national or shared memory that that don't permit us to do whatever we want, if I can put it that way. So that's that that it seems to be is something that these insti- these profit driven corporations don't um, s- simply don't have and and I would even say by their very nature cannot have because such an institution would be consigned or, or, or such a corporate memory would be consigned to the past and therefore irrelevant to the future. Yeah, I, I wonder if a perhaps still more relevant dimension of it is that for whatever it's worth, and it may not be worth that much, nation states do have the United Nations mm. as well. So there is at least a place where national or international deliberation and sort of, um, I don't know if accountability is the right word, but nations that are not involved in the space race can, they have a mechanism by which they can call on those who are. Am I I right, Jordan? You certainly know this better than me, but am I right that the United Nations did come up with some kind of agreement whereby the um, accoutrements of space travel would be declared for all of humanity and they would be shared, however practically that happened, but that at least there was that mechanism in place. I, I, I don't actually um, know the answer to that question. All right, I probably made that up, in which case I go back to my original <laughs> argument. This is all a catastrophe. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the same, whether it's a government or a corporation. But if we take, for example, the International Space Station, right, as a symbol of, of that um, international cooperation, whether it's, you know, there are official sanctions in the UN or not. I, you know, I, I think that's sort of a, a a nice symbol for the fact that through nations, it is possible to come together and collaborate. And, you know, the, the, the politics and the effort would be really, really tricky, but they've managed to do it in the, in the International Space Station. And, you know, more and more countries continue to sign up. And so there is a world where that kind of collaboration is possible already, I think. Um, well, well, I'm just sorry, Googling was, it now, Scott, to see if I can... No, 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 there, there, there's no need to Google it. You're absolutely right. There is, in fact, the 1967 United Nations Outer Space Treaty. Um, uh, um, that's something which is regulated, if you like, the resourcification yep. of other planets. It's also been the thing that is traditionally banned, the weaponization of uh, of outer space. Um, so, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. That mechanism is there. Um, I mean, one thing we didn't get to, if we had more time, be fascinating to get to it, is why is it that nations seem to lose the appetite for 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 uh, um, uh, manned space travel? Um, I think there's something there that goes beyond we can find something else to spend our money on. I think there is something about the risk, about the threat, uh, and therefore the lack of an appetite among among citizens for that kind of thing. Uh, there's something there that would have been nice to explore, but um, maybe that's for another show. Well, yeah. Maybe it's to do with the decline of civilization, Scott. Maybe once, <laughs> that. Maybe once a civilization loses interest in the stars... <laughs> It begins to decline, and what we're witnessing is the decline of these civilizations. Wait, you don't you don't like my theory? <laughs> I think it's a good theory. No, all right, I'm on my yeah. own there. That's the sound right. of everyone telling me to shut up. So I will. Um, Jordan, it's been great fun. Apart from anything else, it's it's such a fascinating topic, and we've freewheeled a bit on it. But I think there are so many threads to pull on there, and I think we've at least identified some of them. So thank you so much for helping us do that. Thank you so much for having me. That's Jordan Gear, our research fellow in the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology, I guess, for this week's edition of The Minefield. I secretly think he loved my last point. He just didn't want to say it on air. Um, <laughs> we're done for this week's edition of The Minefield. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.